Welcome back to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelic science and psychotherapy. We're glad you're tuning in yet again. We are extremely humbled and grateful for all of you continuing to tune into this show. Today, our guest is Eric Osborne. This interview, I think you'll find to be a real trip. Eric is a a fantastic guest and an extremely interesting human being. He has been involved in the world of psychedelics, specifically psilocybin, for many years and continues to innovate and do creative things and just try stuff. We appreciate the time that we get to just kind of talk to him about what he's up to now and what he's been up to in the past. A couple really interesting projects that he's been involved with have been the founding of Myco Meditations, a retreat center in Jamaica. We'll talk a little bit about that, as well as his current project, which is known as Sanctuary, which is an actual church built around psilocybin and the psychedelic mushroom in particular. We'll talk more about that. That's based out of Kentucky, and it's what he's putting his work into right now. In doing that, he's exploring a different context for psychedelic usage. Um, outside of, we spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about the clinical usage, and he's using this in a completely different context, that of a sort of a spiritual or um, religious adjunct. We cover a lot of territory in this show. I hope you enjoy this interview. Eric Osborne. We're here uh, with, uh, as always, Brian and Eric Osborne. The three of us communicate a little bit before this conversation. I think we're all really excited, you know, to have this chat and, uh, you know, hopefully a, a nice freewheeling discussion about all kinds of angles um, on the psychedelic experience and the business of psychedelics and where we're at with psychedelics culturally. Um, if you'll indulge me for just a second, I kind of want to set up. I guess the first aspect of this conversation, and then we'll we'll let it go. Um, so, the name of this program is Altered States of Context. So, a huge focus for us is the context around the psychedelic experience. You know how we come to make sense of it, how we understand it, how uh, we can bridge some of that experience into how one lives their life, how uh, society lives its. Uh, its life, you know, how culture is shaped by it, Um, because there's a mutually reinforcing aspect there between, you know, how the context affects the experience, but then how the experience reflects out and expects the various contexts in which we live. And so because of that, um, you know, I think it's important in this show, we're we're talking about the importance of context, and we focus specifically on a therapeutic context a lot, psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, because we're both uh, psychotherapists, and we're, we're talking to uh, an audience of psychotherapists and science very often, scientists very often. However, I think it's really important to amplify and to note that that is one context among many, you know, and there are a lot of risks when you're just focused on one context. I think the question I want to jump in with is one about gatekeepers, because essentially that's what we're talking about right now in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, you're essentially having 
psychotherapists and uh, psychologists and psychiatrists as a gatekeeper to this experience, you know, with the idea that we will safeguard people's health, we'll safeguard people's well-being, and we'll utilize this experience to help promote mental health. As such, you know, as these gatekeepers, you know, kind of we're asking for, um, or that the field is asking for sort of a good deal of control over that experience or uh, access to that experience, um, which has its pluses and minuses. You know, there's other contexts too. There's other potential gatekeepers. You know, my gatekeeper, when I learned about uh, this, you know, 23 years ago was a janitor at my fraternity house who said, hey, I think you might really like this. So that was my gatekeeper. And that turned out really, really well for me. Um, so I think there's a, 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 it's a very interesting question. So I guess with that, I just kind of want to toss that out to you, Eric, as you've seen this in a lot of different contexts already and sort of what's your perception of this sort of issue of gatekeeping and, you know, who's in charge of this experience? Wow. I think that is a really big and, and very important question, especially right now where we are in the development of psychedelic wellness. Um, you know, it, if we look historically, the gatekeepers have been the spiritual or religious leaders of communities. Um, as far back as we know, anyway, were the shaman who were in charge of these medicines and uh, maintaining or, or presiding over the experience. And so it strikes me as kind of ironic that it is the medical Kind of profession that is currently seeking to kind of I don't want to say clamp down on it, but in many ways I feel like that is what's happening. There's an, there's an attempt to kind of cordon this off into the field of medicine, uh, and I can see why, but I can also say that from my experience in administering hundreds and hundreds of doses of psilocybin to various professionals uh, that medical professionals and therapists, psychiatrists were oftentimes um, the most befuddled by the experience. And it, it was often people who had a, a more religious context for their life experience that understood or were more, more comfortable within the psychedelic space. Um, the analytical mind doesn't, doesn't work very well within the psychedelic space. It's all about the experience. So, <clears throat> you know, who, who should be the gatekeepers? I don't know that there's a, a really good, singular answer for that i tend to feel that those who are willing to go there are the ones who should be taking people there um and that that's probably the biggest issue that i have with the medical establishment attempting to kind of take ownership of this this practice because the vast majority of clinicians that I've spoken with have very little interest in taking psychedelics themselves. 
maybe like one or two experiences and they're like, okay, that's enough for me. Uh, but you know, you guys know that one or two experiences is usually enough to kind of get you to the door of realizing there is way more to this than you ever imagined. And so that's kind of the biggest issue that I take right now with the medicalized approach is that the people who are caretakers in this space should themselves be constantly working with these tools to understand how they work. I mean, I can tell you, I've, I've had at minimum 500 doses of psilocybin and I did not feel qualified to like start the retreats that I did until about at least 10 years after working intensively because the nature of the experience is it's, it's so inconsistent and it's so unpredictable and you have such a responsibility over the people that you're working with that if you don't, if you don't have a real serious level of comfort with that landscape, then you, you really don't have any place in, in walking people through it. Does that, does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and, and that word responsibility um, jumps out at me. And so from your point of view, and I think this would probably cross context, although I think there's probably different aspects uh, depending on um, the approach a person is taking, but what is the responsibility of someone who would presume to sit for someone else in this experience? What's that person's responsibility? I think the ultimate responsibility is within the experience to offer a, a solid sense of security. You especially if you're, if you're working in a group context, you know, the way, the way I was doing in Jamaica, working with 15, 20 people at a time, when you've got a, a number of people who are brand new to this work and they're seeing things happen that for many people, you know, seem disturbing or, or yeah, just say disturbing, uh, then you have a real responsibility to let everybody to help everyone, to ensure that everyone feels as safe as they can. Um, and then, you know, you have a responsibility to the individuals to, to be present and to be non-judgmental and to be compassionate. And so many things come up in these experiences that are so difficult to understand that again, from the outside, could seem distressing. And I know that in the sessions that I've worked, I can't tell you how many times people have said that the only thing that kept them from being terrified by what was going on around them, you know, I mean, people convulsing or screaming or purging or whatever it is, uh, was that they saw me solid. They could see me smiling while <clears throat> all of this craziness was going on around them and that helped them feel sure that whatever it was whatever was happening was good and and even then you know even then it takes a lot of conversation afterwards to help people kind of come to terms with what they either experienced within themselves or what they may have witnessed through others yeah i'll just uh disclose brian and i 
uh, mentioned we were comfortable with this before, but you know, we've both sort of seen that steady smile in action in Jamaica. We, you know, we had the privilege of having uh, an experience there, um, you know, in which, you know, we were able to observe that the necessity and uh, of safety in action, safety within a group context, and, you know, the amount of time and effort it takes to sort of ensure that, um, you know, that there's a container uh, that provides that sense. Um, even when stuff gets uh, perhaps really extreme, as it may have for some of us. A few qualities you mentioned, uh, present, non-judgmental, uh, compassionate, and providing a feeling of safety, you know, and obviously providing both an actual container of like actual physical safety, but then also the, the, the sense or the feeling of safety, you know, and, and we just got done talking about the risks of medicalizing, but I also want to note that within that too, I think that, and this is sort of where I um, often feel drawn um, have been drawn to the field that I'm in is like, those are really the qualities of a very good psychotherapist as well. So I think there's a really natural fit there with this between like a psychotherapist and this experience, but I think that um, really focusing on, on the, the qualities that you just mentioned is, is so important, maybe and less perhaps on um, a pretty rigid theoretical understanding of things and less about, and, and you know, I think for clinicians, it's letting go of a lot of like uh, protocols and theories and uh, you know, packages and, and, and really getting very comfortable in the experience with those qualities that you mentioned because those those jump out at me is you know when you said those words I thought yeah that's that's right on yeah because all the labels they really they don't hold any place in 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 that space I mean when you've got something you know you, you cannot find words for so much of this and so you to just observe detached observation um and you know I don't know I'm I'm obviously, or maybe it's not obvious, but I am not a therapist. Uh, my training for psychedelic work has been with psychedelics. You know, I, when I, when I first came into psilocybin in 1999, um, I felt like I found my home. That's the, the only way I can really say it is I, I was, I, I was home when the, when the mushrooms first came on and I actually spent the first three days. I, I got a bag of mushrooms and I ate mushrooms three days consecutively. Cause I was like, Oh, well, this is where I belong. I got sick after that. And I wouldn't recommend eating mushrooms three days in a row to anybody. But very shortly after that, like 2000, I had a wild new year's Eve 2000 uh, with psilocybin. And over the course of that year, being raised Catholic, I started to, really understand that the mushroom was what the communion was pointing at this the mushroom is actually the sacrament you know i took some study i had to go back and find you know there's tons of uh amazing paintings frescoes and artwork and iconography from you know 12th century catholic churches that depict Jesus surrounded by mushrooms or mushrooms as this central sacrament. There's even some really beautiful mosaics of Adam and Eve with the Amanita muscaria. Um, and so I, I pretty quickly came to understand the mushroom as an access point for personal divinity, if you will. And that's how I dove into it. And I spent, like I said, about 10 years self-administering, I would occasionally sit with a couple of friends 
Um, and you know, sometimes things would get weird, but, um, it was only in 2000 after, you know, it's 2000 when I really started going at it and it was 2013 when I had the first retreat in Jamaica and I did a lot of work myself between then. And I worked with people in the States between then I was arrested. You probably know that, uh, uh, for doing the work here. Um, and so I don't, I don't have, uh, you know, I've, I've done a significant amount of reading of their therapeutic models and, you know, kind of some of the techniques and tools that are applied in conventional therapy. And I absolutely see them as helpful. I, I, I I'm not here to like, you know, poo poo on the therapists at all. Uh, but I do feel very much that there needs to be some kind of a synthesis between this kind of clinical therapeutic work and this more kind of gritty down to earth experiential work. Yeah. I, I, you know, what that raises for me, Eric, is this dialectic in my mind that, that, you know, between, uh, this issue of what, what kind of training is necessary to, to be a guide or facilitator? Like, like if you were to design some sort of, you know, accreditation process, what, what would be the experience that would be necessary? I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you would say having personal experience with psychedelics, right? So we, we want to like lay out for folks, here's the path. If you want to be involved in, in facilitating and doing this work, um, so on that's on one side. On the other side is access, right? If we set the bar too high, which is the way the medical model is sort of rolling out, right? Where it's required to have two licensed clinicians, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's going to limit access. And here in Oregon right now, the way uh, 109, measure 109 is written, um, mm -hmm. you only need a high school diploma to, to hold space. So the idea would be, it's not, person's not really guiding you they're not called guides they're called facilitators because they'll have a room that you can go to that will be safe and your needs will be looked after mm -hmm. um so it's basically like a safe place to trip uh, mm -hmm. but they won't have a lot of experience with therapy or um you know anything like that and the idea is that that will help increase access to folks but of course there's some fear that if you don't train these folks enough uh, you increase the potential for harm. So mm -hmm. how do you balance like accessibility with rigor and competence and folks who are doing this work? Uh, that is such a great question and such a important thing to consider. And I don't know that I, I don't know that I have the answer by any means. Um, you know, it absolutely, as I'm, as I'm suggesting does not take, a, it does not take clinical training, um, but there are absolutely certain behaviors and attitudes that should be exhibited. As, as we've, in Jamaica, I was in the process of developing a training model, and here with Sanctuary, we're looking at training as well, and, and I've looked at different programs and how um, kind of how that functions within different fields and I'm not sure how this is going to come across but it seems like to me that 
the best model is something like martial arts training where you have a, a black belt who through experience, who, through time on the mat can say to a student, you exhibit the qualities of someone who is ready to go to the next level. There, there can be kind of real observable markers but a lot of times within psychedelic space, it's it's more about what people don't do than what they do do that makes them an excellent facilitator. And so someone who has, <clears throat> through time on the mat, learned those things not to do and the things to do, they can observe that in somebody else. And so there were times where facilitators that I worked with in Jamaica, where people who were senior because of their amount of time there would kind of get their feathers ruffled because I would advance someone who didn't have the time, but they had the attention and the skill that put them, you know, a rank above, if you will. And I like, I got to say, like, I, I hate the hierarchical system. I do not like thinking of it in those terms and sanctuary, the church that we're uh, that we, we've organized here in the States, you know, it is intentionally a decentralized, non-hierarchical organization, but there have to be certain, like you said, gatekeepers or, or you know, if, I, I like to think of it more of a coincentric circles where you have a center that things radiate out from. And a lot of times the, the, the peripheral doesn't even know that the center exists, right? If you got a top-down model, you always know that somebody's on top looking down at you. But if you've got a, a system that kind of radiates out from the center, then that feels much more egalitarian and organic to me. Um, and, and, and so that, that's how I perceive it best developing. I don't think it's going, I know it's not going to develop like that in, in kind of standard practice, but that is what we are working on developing within our organization that I think in time will become a really effective model. You know, it strikes me too that this very discussion has to be framed in context because it depends on the context, right? Like if you are specifically marketing to and providing services to people who want help with um, significant mental health problems, there is a different set of training and a different uh, responsibility, I think, in that context than someone who is a religious seeker versus someone who is, you know, an adult who um, just wants to have this experience. They're a pretty healthy, well-adjusted adult, but they want to have this experience. And, and the container you're providing and the sort of expertise that you're offering, I believe that it differs based on the factors of the person coming in. Like you need a much more rigorous container, you know, for someone who has significant mental health problems than you do for an adult who's curious um, to the point where I, I mean, I personally believe there shouldn't be a gatekeeper on, on that because I believe everybody should be able to access that experience. Um, that that's, that's my belief that, that I mean, that's how, that's yeah, how here, we all got to it. <laughs> here's where it gets tricky. And I think, I think you all, the retreat that you all were on is a, is a pretty good example of that. You know, you've got a number of <clears throat> very healthy mental health professionals. Uh, and yet there were, you know, instances where I'm not, I'm not sure 
that the filter that you're talking about would have kind of kind of caught some of that. If that how, how am I trying to say this? Um, just because someone is coming for a religious or recreational or just a you know experience doesn't mean that they're not going to encounter some very deep psychological trouble. And just because someone comes for a psychological healing, that doesn't mean that they're not going to have just a rip roaring good time. And so I've, I've seen instances where therapists that I've hired to come down and work to work on retreats would, you know, say like, I've got a therapist that I've hired that's working this retreat with me and I've got a client that's come in to address PTSD or whatever it is, their depression or whatever. Right. And we had this one instance where this guy literally went into about four hours of just nothing but laughter. He, he came there to work on his social anxiety and his treatment resistant depression. Right. And the therapist that was there was just kind of like, really irritated that he wasn't diving into these issues and that he wasn't doing the work. He was just having a good time. And there were people who came down to just have the experience who ended up going through some really deep, scary stuff, you know? So I I feel like it's so hard to, it's so hard to pin down but whoever is kind of, you know, the center point of that, that, that space. Yeah. Needs to be let, able let, to, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say, l- let me clarify too, because I, I really appreciate what you said. I think it's really important um, about how it doesn't matter. And I, I think that that's absolutely true. Like it doesn't matter what, I mean, probably to a certain extent, but not that much a person's priors coming into the experience, like what, you know, you open that bottle and, you know, any genie imaginable is likely to fly out of it. Right. right. Um, you know, just to disclose, I went on, on that trip and I, and I have done a very good deal of uh, psychedelic work myself. And man, I had some stuff fly out down there that I did not see coming and wouldn't have predicted. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, you know, I get that. And you know, I would have never been a person who would have been screened for something like that. Um, you'd be like, no, this is a really healthy, well-adjusted person who's done this a lot. Um, so I, I'm not kind of saying that you can screen for what that experience is exactly. But I think there is a difference between, and this is where I think the conversation shifts a bit to integration is because, you know, like how is whatever that experience is going to bridge with the rest of a person's life. And I think if somebody, you know, is dealing with a significant mental health struggle, like that experience is going like, and there needs to be a pretty rigorous way of working with that. Right. Whereas um, somebody who is more well-adjusted, they might have a hell of an experience, but they're going to go back to probably being pretty well-adjusted. They might have some serious stuff to integrate, but there's, you're just dealing with a different level of functioning before that's probably going to be at least somewhat durable after. Um, yes. and, and, and so, so then, and, and, and that's more what I mean, like the experience itself is, yeah. and I want to honor and I agree completely that, I mean, who the hell knows you can't pretend, pretend you're going to know exactly what's going to come out. And I, I don't think that that's uh, <laughs> wise to even pretend that you're going to do that. No, it's, re- it's so true. And what you're saying about the, 
the aftercare is really where kind of the training of the individual that you're working with is probably more relevant to mental health, right? That would be my view. You know, that would be my view is that that, that that would be more important in something like that than somebody who's coming in with a pretty good adjustment to life. You know, I don't think that person you need to build a, a super rigorous structure around that person. Like you need to ensure a safe, competent environment if you're offering the service. Um, but then again, I think that people should always just be able to grow their own and do whatever the hell they want. And that's also an important piece too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, the, the integration piece is, huh, got it. I, I, I feel like it's a lot more involved than it's typically even credit for. I'm, I'm interested in how, how you all are, kind of perceiving that and how we're understanding that in the therapeutic practice moving forward, like in Oregon, for instance, you know, what is, what's kind of, what's kind of being set up to help people long-term come to terms and contextualize, apply the experience. Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think the word integration gets used a lot, but um, it means a lot of different things to different people. Mm-hmm. And that was one question I had for you too, Eric, was, you know, what are the practices or strategies or <clears throat> methods for what to do after a psychedelic experience that, that are most helpful, right? I think in terms of if I'm going to put my therapist hat on or, you know, speak from a place of, uh, uh, you know, psychotherapy, this is a very underdeveloped technology, right? You've got the, the, what they've done in the clinical trials, which is three sessions. And it's not exactly clear when you read about them, you know, what, what they're doing. You've talked to people who've worked on the trials who are able to kind of explain a bit more. Um, but, you know, it's unclear, like, what are the guiding principles or, you know, let's say someone has a really challenging experience. They, they can't make sense of it. Like how, how to best help them? What, what do you tell them to do? People are often looking in my experience, working with clients who've had a psychedelic experience, they want direction. They want some advice about something they can do to, to move them along either to clarify something that was confusing or resolve something that's uh, still distressing to them. Uh, I know. So I know it's a big question, but I'd love to hear maybe even a couple of specific examples of um, things that you think are helpful after you have a psychedelic experience. Oh, um, this is something that we have put a lot of thought into lately here, Courtney and myself. So, you know, I will acknowledge that I feel like the, the greatest shortfall of the program when I was in Jamaica and I can't speak to it now. I'm not, I'm not associated with Michael meditations anymore. Um, but I fully acknowledge that one of the places where I feel like I, I'll just say I fell short or the program when I was there felt short uh, was in integration. Um, And I think that three therapy sessions, is that what you're saying? Three therapy sessions is the kind of integration within the Oregon model? No, actually in the Oregon model, uh, there is the the facilitator is, I believe required to offer one, mm-hmm. um, but it's not required that the, that the client attend it. The yeah. only requirement is that the, the client attend one um, preparation session and then the dosing session. 
Yeah. I mean, you can, you can definitely get results like that. And we saw many, 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 many amazing results. The thing that I think that, that I did really well at Myco and that, that I still uh, is a big part of the program that we're, we're building here is building community. Um, because when you start thinking about administering hundreds or thousands of doses of psilocybin, for instance, then that's, that's a lot of aftercare. And it is, I think it's a slippery slope that we're on here in talking about psychedelics as this amazing therapeutic tool in and of themselves without really putting a lot of emphasis on the very tough and committed work that has to be done afterwards to really create the changes that we want to. Uh, so that's why like Courtney and I, we've come back and we've been talking about this and it's, we, we started this coaching company called more than integration because like Nathan said, integration is such a kind of big buzzword. There's a lot of meaning for a lot of people, but I feel like in many ways it's kind of void of real meaning, you know, like an integration session, you go and sit and talk about your experience and you try to like, pull some more from it. The last time I did mushrooms, which I haven't, I haven't taken a dose since September. I've been giving myself a break and, and working on other techniques that I'll be happy to share with you. The last time I did a mushroom dose in September of 2020, my very first psilocybin experience in 1999 came back and just punched me in the face. I am endlessly amazed and how long the tail is on these experiences and how much there is to glean from them if we will continue to go back to them. I think that the practices to be put in place afterwards are as varied as the, as the people that take the medicine, right? For me, um, there's, a, there's a number of practices that I've, employed that have helped me get more out of my experiences and understand more about what my experiences were. Um, Qigong is one right now that I've been working a lot with since I've been back. Psilocybin, I feel like over <clears throat> the duration of my work with psilocybin, that is, <clears throat> excuse me, what I have ultimately come to understand us as, you know, my very first mushroom trip the mushrooms, if you will, said to me, it's all energy. It's all energy. And I didn't even know what that meant until about maybe a year ago when, you know, as time went on and I would take psilocybin in these groups and I started to become more and more aware of my truer, our truer nature, not as physical beings, but as, as energetic vessels. Um, and so over time, it revealed to me how important the study of this energy body is, <clears throat> and not just the study of it, but the engagement with it. So for me, one of the most important things that I can do, and in the last couple of weeks, I've fallen off, right, um, is to engage with this practice of Qigong. And that's, there's, there's kind of a, a longer story there as to how I came to that. Um, basically. I would, I was having some 
the very, very confusing things happening while I was on mushrooms that were repeatedly happening. And I didn't, I didn't know what to make of it. Um, and the only thing that could explain it to me is I found a, a Dallas teacher that in his texts, he, he was able to describe everything that I was experiencing on psilocybin, uh, the things that I had never heard anybody speak of. And so once I found that out, I continued to study. So I think, you know, self-study, you know, is a huge component of this. We can't just, so we, we we're taking psilocybin and we're taking ayahuasca and we're taking these, these powerful medicines or sacraments, however you however you choose to, to view it. We're, we're taking these and we're looking at them through still a very kind of Western model. Like this is a medicine that I take and it causes an effect in me. And I don't believe that anymore. I believe that um, we take, we, we consume these plants and they help us study ourselves. They help us see who we are and only through seeing who we are, where our hangups are, where our, what, where liberation lies only by seeing that can we become healthy. Right. So it's not, it's, it's not, it's not an Advil. It's not something that you take that, that alleviates a symptom. It's something that you take that reveals the causes of the symptom. And then if you will go into that and continue to work, to understand, I don't, I don't care about myself, like the origins of the, of all the stuff, the origins of the trauma for myself. And, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of people who have been highly traumatized and I'm, I'm, I'm not dishonoring what we've been through. You know, I've been sexually assaulted. I've had, you know, some very troubling things happen in my life. And there was a long time that I thought, well, if I just go back and reanalyze the thing and keep talking about the thing that this is, I'm going to get to the bottom of it. I'm going to get healed from it. And I, I don't believe that anymore. Um, I believe that only in taking a different perspective on the past, but more importantly, the present is how we're going to find healing. And that has to happen moment to moment to moment. We, 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 you know, we are always living in now. And so whatever practices, whatever, whatever we're doing after our psychedelic experiences, if they're taking us away from right now, then they're minimally effective if effective at all. So even something like this, this sounds trivial, trivial, I know, but dedicatedly taking a walk, right? Taking every day, if you commit yourself to taking a 30 minute to an hour walk to just being present and being with yourself is an extremely valuable integration tool, if you will. Right. Um, so I kind of like, I'm kind of like so over the integration term because it doesn't mean anything so often other than like, let's just rehash the experience. Right. Yeah. But like, like I said, with the, with the Qigong or whatever, you know, when the mushrooms showed me this, ball of light that was going up through my spine and was entering into my mind and 
was moving into my heart and then radiating out into the world around me. And they were illustrating to me how I intake energy, move it through my system, pass it through my filter, and then send it back out into the world. They weren't doing that. It wasn't happening. So I could just have this one experience that I could reflect on. They were showing me how I function. They were showing me the creature that I am. And so I I have to try and stay present with that. I I have to take those experiences and not look at them as some, you know, aberration or some hallucination, but really understand that they're showing me who I am. And then I get, in many ways, we get the opportunity to decide if that's who we want to be, right? I mean, depression. I have struggled with suicidal depression for, I don't know, since I was probably eight, 10 years old. Even with taking psilocybin for years, there were many, many times. And it was only after I started to see the effect that this mental loop that I was allowing myself to slip back into was affecting my family, my surroundings, was I able to make a change, right? Mushrooms did not cure my depression. Mushrooms helped me see how my depression was affecting everyone around me. And then they helped me see that I had the ability to change my mind, to change my perspective. You know, in, 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 in all of the observations, and I mean, I, I have studied this experience like a scientist. I mean, I, you know, I'm a rational, very grounded herpetology and mycology. Those are my loves. Like I got into psilocybin because out of a love of mycology, you know, I don't even know where else you're going with that. Oh, but, but what in, in, in all of my observations, this thing happening and, and the retreat you all were on was an excellent example of this is that this, the idea of free will that we get to choose what we're doing and where we're going and all of that. I think it's, I think it's bullshit. I think it's a farce. I think the only thing that we have really have free will over is our perspective. Basically, there's a few other kind of mental faculties that we have some, you know, will to direct, but our perspective is first and foremost. And a lot of times within, you know, within depression, particularly, it's like, I, I, I know I've done this. I've worked with people who were depressed and I've, I've in my own depression and I've worked with therapists who have had the same approach where it's just like, okay, let's talk about why you are depressed. I'm, I, I don't believe in that anymore. I believe that we are, we have programmed ourselves. We Things have happened in our past that we have allowed to program particular ways of thinking and that we can become aware of those programs. And then we can choose, we can choose to reprogram. We can choose through the use of our will to keep redirecting our perspective. Uh, I think I maybe have gotten significantly off track from what we were talking about, but oh. you know, that's no, it. no, no. You're, you're, you're exactly on the track, like wherever the track's going, I don't know, but you're on it. So <laughs> but there's so much there. I, you know, as you're talking, I'm just like, Oh man, you know, and Brian, and I just did an episode a couple of weeks ago where we were talking about integration. I think it was like 
what the fuck does that even mean? Like, yeah. you know, it, I, so I couldn't agree more. It's just this vague term that says basically like, wow, that's a big experience. Somehow this has got to translate to life, but like, that's about as far as the term goes. Um, and um, I kind of want to like throw out a perspective on s- some of the richness that you just threw out there and kind of see if we can find a synthesis in the language we're using around it. Um you know, I feel like the MO of our ego, mind, conceptualized self, whatever you want to call it, the MO of that is control. It's control, right? Like that's what that thing that we call that we generally refer to as I or me or myself or my ego craves and wants. And so, like if you go into this idea of like, you know, I'm gonna uh process this trauma, or I'm going to figure out what's going on with my depression, or I'm going to like, it's your, like, I think what the, the slippery slope that happens almost immediately is your mind says, yes, I'm going to do this so I can have control over it. Right. Like I'm going to figure this out. And once I figure this out, I'm going to have it. I'm going to ha- be able to keep it in a cage and have control over it. Right. And that's, I think essentially where most of our, like, that's, uh, you know, uh, basically what uh, psychopharmacology tends to do. It's like, here, let's, we'll give you this pill. You take it every day. It's going to help you keep this in the cage. You know, it's going to help you establish control over this unruly sort of mind of yours so that you can, you know, have that sense of being in control. But the nature of reality, like you're saying, is like, you're not in fucking control. You never were and you never will be like, that's not a thing that doesn't actually exist. And if you're striving for control, you are deluding yourself repeatedly and you're always going to suffer from this sort of like crippling existential angst because you're trying to do something that's impossible. Mm -hmm. What you're describing in the psilocybin experience is a relinquishment of that control and a trust in the present and a willingness to ride it, a willingness to ride that experience. And when we can do that, we, we can see that we cannot control the experience of our lives. We're not, we're not in control. Control is an illusion, a delusion. Uh, But perhaps we can shift our viewpoint at it. Perhaps we can maybe scooch the flow a little bit here or a little bit there, you know, and that we can learn to ride the experience much more so than actually give our mind what it craves, our ego, our our conceptualized self, whatever you want to call it, what it craves. Um, So when I say it like that, like I'm trying to, like, well, like I said, I'm just trying to find a synthesis of language here. Um, sort of what grabs you, like what, you know, how would you add to that? What would you say about that? I'd say that's hundred percent, uh, hundred percent. I'm reading a really interesting book right now called psycho cybernetics. Have you heard of this Maxwell Maltz? Uh, he was, the, this. he is the, he's the, he's the plastic surgeon surgeon who in the sixties identified, um, the, uh, self perspective or the, the uh, self-identity, right? Like it wasn't really conceived of prior to this, that there were, you know, there was any more than one perception of self. And we, there's at least two, right? The way we perceive ourselves and the way that others perceive us. And, uh, you know, a lot of what he talks about and what his experience through plastic surgery and seeing how certain people after plastic surgery would become a new person. They would have a completely new identity 
if you will. Um, and what it, he maintains is much of what I saw in mushroom space and sounds like what you're saying is that the only, we just, the only thing we can do is keep re redirecting our perspective. You, you are not going, you're spinning on a ball, a rock around a ball of fire careening through the universe at how many miles an hour. And you're pretending like you're in control. And so it's, it's just a, a delusion, like you said. Um, so what we can take control of though, take responsibility for is the way that we look at things. And that's just entirely what mushrooms have, have again, again, taught me is that it's all in perspective and we do have to retrain. We do have to really do serious work. We have to use, have to strengthen our will to continue to redirect our thoughts and understand like you can look at the world in one of two ways. You can look at the world as a, as going to shit or getting better. Or I guess you can look at it like it's just kind of stagnant, but that's, that's really challenging for me because it's, you know, there's, there's always movement. There's always movement occurring and you can see in yourself, if you, if you can sit and take the perspective, okay, I watch the news, the world's going to shit. Okay. I go hang out with my friends and family and my community and I see that we're all growing and you can, you can see the change in your overall perspective. And so, you know, like to just keep, I like was just keep just scooching it over just keep getting to focusing on the positive, focusing on the reality. I mean, evolution, if we look at, if we look at existence, the mechanism of evolution is to always move us towards better. It is, if you look at any form of life, it is to find a way to function more efficiently in its environment. And that's how I choose to see the world. And it's, it's taken, like I was, a, I had a, had a very negative perspective in my life and it's taken time and time and time to keep redirecting to see that this is actually a, a beautiful thing. And so even like with the psychedelic movement, we can focus on the fact that, you know, there's a bunch of money coming in and people trying to grab onto this. People that don't have any experience with it are trying to just, you know, like say land grab and make money off of the thing. Or we can also look at the reality that is also true is that these very powerful tools that are, are our God-given right are starting to come into our grasp. And it's going to take some time for us to for, for this to evolve into what people like ourselves, I think, who see a, a bigger potential and who see a uh, more egalitarian use, it's going to take some time for that to come into existence, but it's coming. Yeah. I, you know, one, one thing you said a little earlier that I really appreciated, Eric, was you know, sharing your own personal journey with mushrooms and psilocybin and how they've helped you and uh, the, you know, the, the piece about um, they're not going to cure depression. They're not a quick fix. They're not just going to make you feel good. They're going to make you see things. They're going to reveal things. I think is really important because it's so easy for folks who are new to this to have um, expectations that are not very helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, either, either that's a client who's seeking an experience or 
a therapist who comes into this work with thinking that psychedelics are one thing. Um, so I, I really like that reframe of of thinking about psychedelics as as revealing and showing us um, more than uh, we can normally see in our day to day consciousness. And that if you're not if you're not prepared for that or if you're not open to that, um, you're more likely to run into uh, having a tough time or having being overwhelmed. Um, mm -hmm. If you're using the psychedelics in a manner of control, like I, I want to, I want to be this way, or I want to change this part of me, um, you know, the, I, it, it seems to me like that would be more of a recipe for um, having a tough experience. So how do we help the, the establishment really not, not, not understand that perspective, but apply that perspective, you know, when, I'm trying to think of any aspect of our <clears throat> Western medical health models that aren't a kind of another exhibition of control. You know, that's well, good. I, I, I actually have, I, I have what I think is at least a partial answer to that. Um, I mean, I don't, not like I, some brilliant insight of mine, it's not anything I create at all. Um, but my thought on that is simply that um, I think this is why I'm such an advocate for um, uh, ACBS, the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science and, and the technology of acceptance and commitment therapy, because I think it does an exemplary job of just exactly this. And we talked about this in earlier episodes um, about the ACT model and how it, uh, I think, usefully maps onto the psychedelic experience. But a couple qualities of uh, this perspective that I think are, are tremendously useful in the medicalized context um, is that it isn't pathological, right? Like you're, we're not focused on mental disorders. We're not focused on like, we're focused on processes, things that, you know, um, are um, things that become rigid in a person's outlook, in a person's behavior uh, that, that cause them to not be able to adapt to circumstances, right? It's not pathologizing. It's not putting people into, to, I mean, if you're a practicing psychotherapist, you do have to diagnose, generally speaking, to be reimbursed. Uh, but for instance, it isn't how I think about somebody. Somebody comes in and I'm like, okay, your symptoms mass, match depression. And I don't really think about depression again. You know, like it's, I fill in the box and it's out my brain. You know, I'm like, okay, now I'm dealing with the person and, you know, where are you stuck? You know, so, so it isn't based in um, pathology it is based in experience, right? So we're not trying to figure out like X, Y, and Z process happened when you were a kid. Like sometimes you do have to talk about what, what your, your past you do have, like, cause that's important context. You know, who we are uh, is composed of who we were, but we do that not so much like we're gonna go talk about it and like figure it out. We're gonna talk about it so that we can really notice patterns over time. And when we notice patterns over time, then we know what the work is. What the work is this pattern over time uh, indicates that there's this process that we're habitually engaged in that isn't helping us live uh, in, in alignment with our values. So if we want to live in alignment with our values, this process, you know, we have to find a way to here and now modify it. And then we have a number of tools we use to do that, none of which are necessarily around like, quote, figuring it out or doing this real analytical, um, you know, like, hey, you know, 
this real problem solving mentality. I mean, there's some of that because life is complicated. And sometimes there's actually just pretty simple problems that need to be solved. But at root, you know, we're really, it's a process oriented model. It's a non pathologically oriented model. And the processes are ones that are extremely consistent, you know, with, um, I, I believe with, uh, the therapeutic bit, the therapeutic benefits of, of psychedelic experiencing, you know, things like being in the present moment, things like perspective shift and having a different sh- um, sense of self. Like these are core act processes this is what they talk about in the act model, a uh, different sense of self and sh- shifting your perspective, um, your relationship with language itself and, and, and the language that you use in your mind on a day-to-day basis and how to distance oneself from that language accepting, right? Like have, instead of a control-based mentality of trying to control your thoughts, control what goes through your mind, having more of an acceptance-based stance so that you can, instead of control the flow, you can kind of more accept it and then direct your energy elsewhere. So all of these processes, there's six of them that again, you know, I'm not going to go into depth right now, but they're all, I think, extremely consistent with this. So we have a model uh, that's been developed scientifically for 30, 40 years now that I believe is consistent with just about everything we're talking about today. Why has that? And I, you know, I, I remember a lot of this from the retreat when you are down there now that you bring it up. And I actually, I tried to read one ACT book uh, when I came back and it was so, it was so dense that I, 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 yes. in the, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when we can be that when we talked about this and we've, we've shared your kind of understanding and your practices and it's all yes it's like yeah this is exactly what the field needs right and i'm curious why or i guess is this a growing model in therapy or, or and is it, how much is it how much is it being applied within psychedelic therapy because it does seem like such a good fit Brian, you might be able to answer that question better yeah, than no, I. I, mean, I. I think it is. I, th- I think it is uh, that, you know, some of the trials um, have used um, acceptance and commitment therapy to to inform their preparation and integration sessions. Um, I, I do see that there that there will be a future um, for ACT and psychedelics. Uh, I think it's, you know, like like we're talking about today, it's it's one way of doing it. I think Nate and I are both biased. We're, we're both um, very um, passionate about act and its potential. And, and for the things that Nate said in terms of depathologizing and um, being able to hold mystery, being able to hold the weirdness that comes up in psychedelic experiences. Uh, it's not, you know, a rational or logical kind of thing. And the way some other therapies are um, really relies on logic and, reasoning um so you know i i think there's there is a role for act and i think there's going to be a role for for many models um and one you know one of the things i really wanted to make sure to ask you eric while you were here because you know you're you have so much experience in uh group settings and i wanted to talk about the differences between individual and group settings because most of the the clinical trials and, and the model here in Oregon is going to be on uh, individual client with one or two therapists, right? And it might be in Oregon that there'll, there'll be some group applications, but there's a couple of studies now that are being done um, with groups. So I just wanted to hear from you, like, what advantages do you see groups having that individual um, tr- sessions 
don't have or what are the main differences between the two um, given that you've you've seen I think both individual and group work oh wow I'm really gl- gl- glad you brought that up um, it, it absolutely needs to go towards group therapy and it absolutely um, I spent the better part of 12 years um, doing individual work one-on-one work and I can say that the, the progress made within the group experience for both the professionals that are administering and the clients who are receiving uh, is exponential. We, each one of us is a composite of our life experiences, of the human experience, of all, everything that's happening right now. And that doesn't even like touch, you know, the, the synchronicities or the group experiences that the, the individual experiences within the group that inform the entire group and the individuals within that group it just accelerates growth in ways that I, I cannot put words into. And I, I was very much like a la Terrence McKenna, five in the dark, silent, solo. <clears throat> if I could go back and do anything over, it would be to start working in groups sooner. I mean, myself as a practitioner and how I came to understand the nature of this medicine expanded so rapidly. I mean, for one, is it from a practitioner standpoint, you get a lot of data and you get a lot of feedback all at, you know, in one exchange. And particularly if you are a practitioner that is consuming the medicine alongside with your clients, which I think is an extremely, um, can be an extremely beneficial and positive um, technique, then you know, you, you may, you may have an experience. You may, you may experience a phenomenon that leaves you scratching your head for months and you may not ever experience that again, or you may only experience that in two years or five years. And so to be able to compare notes with people that you're working with, invaluable to understanding the landscape as far as the individuals who are seeking help which we all are if we're being honest with ourselves even the practitioners uh, but the individuals who are coming for directly for a therapeutic outcome the way that other experiences feed into those and this is going to get really abstract i think it's hard to I think wrap our heads around a lot in our kind of Western understanding, but I have seen so many times a group of strangers come together. And by the end of one session or the third session, those individuals come to have a very strong belief that they, that it was not some random selection that there was some kind of pull 
that was bringing people together so that their experiences could feed off of each other's experiences. I mean, I, I, I cannot tell you the number of times that people have said to me, if that person hadn't have been here in my session, I would have never got this healing or this information. Even, you know, I have thought about, uh, you know, that one of those sessions that we had together so many times. And uh, I know which one. Yeah, I bet you do. And the, <laughs> the, way, the way that played out and the healing that came for that individual at the end of the at the end of the night on that second session, that could have never happened had it not been for the four hours preceding it. So, you know, we don't know what's going on here. We do not understand reality we are lying to ourselves when we say we know what's going on yeah and we can we can sometimes in the midst of the thing coming together we can say oh okay 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 all right and then that kind of perspective will shift Mm -hmm. um but it's like it's like I had an experience once where I was sitting up on a balcony. It was, it was after a session or the session was kind of about to tell the end, you know, or I had, I had dosed with the group and I'm sitting up on a balcony and I'm looking out at the ocean and, you know, you can see like, I don't know, probably a couple of miles out to sea and you can see the shore. And as the waves hit the shore, I'm, I'm really understanding that those waves started well before the horizon and that those waves as they as they land on the shore they the only way or the only reason that they came there in the manner that they did is because of everything that happened preceding that mm-hmm. and i saw that as comparable to all life really and the trip space in my perspective is just a magnifying glass on all life right but it it so deeply sank into me this realization of how intricately woven we all are into the fabric of being these trees that are out here that i'm looking at out my window they're, they're impacting me. They're, they're having an effect on how I perceive myself on how I engage with the world that in ways that I can't even fathom. There's no way that I can understand the impact that everything around me is having on me. So to go into these spaces with kind of, there is absolutely, well, maybe not. I don't know if this is true. Uh, I wonder if there is kind of a kind of peak performance dynamic, if you will. I'm really interested in the possibility of having a large group of individuals on psilocybin together, uh, like 
200 people, you know, um, and I'm not, and I know there's gonna be a lot of people that, you know, freak out when I say that that's okay. I don't care. Um, because seeing what I've seen and how 15 and 20 people when well-managed, when there is support for the space has such a, a, such a beneficial impact on everybody, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And so, so to see what that would look like as we, if we were to expand that out is really fascinating to me. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that, that may not, I think it probably look like a lot of tie dye. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's, maybe we could put some constraints on the thing, right? <laughs> Do you remember the tie dye comment? Do you remember that? Nathan, Which, when you looked at me and you said, the tie dye's a bit much, don't you think? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> yeah, um, I, you know, for, I, I can share two two aspects of the group experience during my my retreat in Jamaica that I couldn't have gotten uh, with an individual experience. The first was um, seeing myself through the eyes of others. That was so mm-hmm. essential to my own healing, and mm-hmm. you know what is it two and a half years later now I could say that that was a real shift in, in my sense of self mm-hmm. to, to be in a group of people who were able to reflect back to me, how they experienced me changed the way I see and, and experience myself. That couldn't have happened, yeah. you know, one-on-one. That was really beautiful, man. That was really, that was really beautiful to see. It was almost like, God, I, I I'm really glad, glad you brought that up. I forgot about that. That was like, you know, seeing that, that change in you when you realized how people saw you, that was really, really touching. And the second was the, just the hearing about other people's experiences while well, being with people, but I'm, I'm specifically thinking about like the integration circle and mm-hmm. having people process and, and like observing, let's say you or the other guides process with other people um, I, I found like the, the integration sessions um, as valuable as the dosing sessions because mm-hmm. people were, ta- you know, still kind of in it. And as you alluded to, um, there were aspects of other people's work that that kind of triggered things in me and, and, and were, were helpful to me. And so I think the group process is probably not for everyone. There's some people who I, I think are... Um, have difficulty for whatever reason because of their histories engaging with the group. But I, I, I agree with you that I think there is a lot of power in doing this in a community format. Of course, that's how a lot of these medicines were used culturally for thousands of years, right? They weren't necessarily taking one off. They were part of these large ceremonies involving groups of people. Yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that down, but a little bit more down to earth than where I was approaching it. Um, <laughs> You know, but all of all of what you're saying is true. I, I do tend to think that even the individuals who initially benefit more from a, a solo experience, if they can get past some of the kind of blockages or or whatever the anxieties, maybe um, to get into that group experience, and and even you know, even when people are in a group and they're having difficulty with the group there's a lot of value that can be extracted from that challenging experience. Right. Um, so I, I, I feel like, I feel like it's a very pretty small percentage of people overall 
that the the solo experience is for this highly beneficial for it. I, I I really struggle with the concept of two sober sitters and one you know tripping individual uh i don't even like being around people that aren't on mushrooms when i'm not when i'm when i'm on mushrooms you know it's just like you don't you don't get it unless unless somebody really gets it then there's Mm -hmm. this kind of distance there you know and i understand that i think there's a there's like that kinship, you know, that automatic kinship that develops well, you know, you, when you're in the same sort of soup. Um, yeah. And I want to throw in too, like, you know, cause we're talking about, I, I think, you know, in the group experience, because I'm completely in agreement about that's the way to go for a million reasons. And, you know, one of the other aspects of it. So there's, you know, all the, 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 um, you know, you can uh, bonding and there's um, other people's experience evoking your experience and the ability to process and blah, 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 blah. That let's not gloss over the fact that that is fun as hell. And some of the most hilarious shit I've ever seen in my entire life. And, you know, that's good. That's a good thing. You know, then that shouldn't be something that you should gloss over to me. That's a core central, like that, that brings people together and it, it brings people together in a durable way. Not even just like, connecting me to this other person, but connecting me to sociability universally. Like when you can share that depth of enjoyment, that depth of fun, that depth of just sheer hilarity, that is a powerful experience. And like I said, some of the like absolute funniest things I've ever experienced have been in that space. Um, Also though, I talk about it later. I'm like, was that, that funny? It it was funny (laughs) at the time, man. That was so funny. But when I say it now, it was, it's kind of funny, but you know, I think that that's a, a, just the fun and weirdness of it. The weirdness of it can really yeah. emerge in that space. And when yes. you're talking about two sober sitters and one tripping person, like there's going to be some weirdness, but it's not going to be shared weirdness, which is, yeah. I don't know, in a way that defeats the purpose. When you have the shared weirdness, it's so powerful. Totally. But there's so many other things about groups too. Even if we just talk logistically, you know, like we want to talk about access. Well, if you can, you can have mm-hmm. one adept, or you can have one adept facilitator, right? And you know, four or five or six apprentice facilitators and a group of 15 people, mm-hmm. you know, so you can just more efficiently deliver service that way. So when we talk Absolutely. about access, like the group model is, is a boon for access. Um, and I think it also mitigates some of the risks, some of the risks of, uh, 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 unethical or unscrupulous facilitator, you know, influencing a person in, in, a, in a relatively private space. You know, if you have like a lot of people and you have a cross section of, you know, I think it would be good to have, you have an adept sitter, but then you have uh, these apprentices that I think ideally are not necessarily like stu- always students of the same um, adept, you know, so you have a mix there. So you have more accountability built in when you have 20 people of a, you know, from a variety of backgrounds. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a real thing and that's important. Um, so there's just so many to me, I absolutely and completely agree that group is the way to go and should be pursued. It's interesting. You bring this up though. One of the things I, th- I think that is valuable to point out, <laughs> you know, I, I think that sometimes it's, it's thought of like, okay, you're saying we got, let's say we got 15 people and we've got, you know, one kind of adept. I like the way you're saying that. And then we've got support people uh, there with that individual students, if you will, or apprentices, however you want to trainees, whatever you say. And, you know, I want to, I want this to come across in, in the right way. Um, but one of the things I've experienced often is that the, the, the students 
if you will, can be more of a liability than the individuals seeking treatment. There, this, this is something that I'm, I'm not sure how to talk about. I've never really talked about this publicly, um, but I think it's really important that we consider as we start looking at different models. Uh, it's, it's really easy for facilitators um, to, especially like when it gets playful, because here's the deal. It can go from playful to disaster on a dime, you know, and facilitators who have a, a moderate level of experience, I have seen them get too engaged with that playfulness and not be aware that a lot of times when someone is in a very kind of light, goofy, psychedelic mood, that can often be the precursor for a serious downturn. I, I have seen so many times trips start out with, you know, just hilarity. And by the end of the five hours, I mean, I, you know, it just, it, go, it goes completely in the opposite direction. I had a friend here locally who just told me of his experience. And this is someone who has had a significant number of psychedelic experiences. He actually came down. Well, I want to go far, but, uh, and, uh, he did a dose about two weeks ago, just four grams, took four grams by itself, processed everything, went well, had some tears. He did it by, you know, was telling about this. And at the end of this, of the dose, he was like, he thought, he thought it was over, went to go eat some food, went to get a bowl of cereal. But before he got a bowl of cereal, he smoked a bowl. And when he hit that, when he smoked that bowl, shit just went sideways on him. By the end of the night, he had called an ambulance for himself. The police were at his house and he was taken to the hospital. Right. So while this experience, it's just always so important, you know, because we can we can talk about it very lightly and playfully. And there's a lot of weirdness. And, but this is some serious shit. This is some real serious stuff. And oftentimes people who are not that experienced, you know, and I mean, like have had like maybe 20 trips, you know, that's, uh, that's a lot for a lot of people. A lot of people think 20 doses of mushrooms is a lot. It's not. And a lot of times those students, if you will, are unaware of the potential for this to take an immediate left turn. So, you know, I'm just, I'm just bringing that up because I don't ever, I, you know, I have been criticized for being too kind of loose, which is bullshit. I'm, I'm not. I'm highly aware of, of how this thing can go. I think it's extremely important that we approach it with a light attitude, knowing that anything can happen and being ready for anything to start out with a kind of an open, light, playful, but serious approach. 
so anyway, I just want to throw that in there because if anybody does start doing group sessions and things are happening more in the States and there are people that are taking liberties and, and I get that, like, you know, I get it. And yes, I agree with you, Nathan, a hundred percent. Every single person person should have the right to grow mushrooms and eat mushrooms. This is something that like right now is spring in Kentucky. There's wild psilocybin everywhere. It's fucking everywhere. And you know, nobody should go to jail for that, for picking that. But everybody should understand that while 90% of the time, this is a, you know, weird, interesting, playful, introspective experience. There is absolutely a percentage of it that has to be highly monitored. Um, I wanted to shift for the last couple of minutes here. We might, I wanted to make sure we gave a little bit of space to talk about sanctuary for sure. You know, we talk about at the beginning, it kind of set the conversation up around talking about various contexts. We, you know, you talk about, uh, we can talk about the therapeutic context, um, group context, ceremonial contexts, um, viewing it in the, like a more therapeutic, like secular light, but then there's the religious spiritual aspect of it, which is, you know, we've kind of alluded to and talked in and out of, you know, the whole conversation, but I wanted to more explicitly give space for that and talk about what you're doing at sanctuary. Um, but I guess that's, that's, that's the prompt go for it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> you know, well, what is spirituality? What, what is spirit? We don't even know. Right. Again, the first thing the mushroom said to me in 1999 was it's all energy. And that's how I understand spirit, if you will. It is the thing that comes from itself, right? We don't, we don't know where the energy of life comes from. Historically, these plants have been viewed as a way to access the spirit world. And in truth, when I started consuming psilocybin, you know, I've, First of all, I have a, a background in religious studies, not formal, but, you know, my library is pretty extensive and pretty esoteric. Um, I was raised Catholic. And I was raised in like the end of the world Catholicism, you know. Um, so I wanted to try to get a handle on that when I was a kid because I thought, you know, well, fuck, the world's going to end. I'd like to have a heads up if possible. Uh, so I studied a lot of different um religions, if you will, or perspectives. And when I first, I don't, I don't even know, I think it was because when I was a kid, I read about peyote. I remember being like seven or eight and getting a book at the library and reading about peyote as this plant that was used to contact the spirit world. And then I started learning about mushrooms. And even though like in high school and stuff, people would talk about mushrooms as, a, as if they were just some drug, I felt that it was different. And when I was probably 18 or 19, I got in, introduced to Rastafarianism or the Rastafari movement. And I was already a pot smoker by then. But when I came into exposure to Rasta and I started seeing cannabis as a, a sacrament for them and a, a spiritual access point, then I, I, I had like a kind of a context for that through my readings as a child and my religious upbringing. And so I started actually using cannabis as a tool for meditation. I would, I would smoke pot in the morning and read the Bible or read the Quran or read the Nagamati or read the Dead Sea Scrolls or whatever. Um, and so I already had a kind of a, 
an idea that mushrooms were more than just a drug. And I remember, I remember when I first started looking into eating mushrooms, I remember thinking to myself, I want to do this so that I can see the spirit world, if you will. Now, I, I, you know, I've, I've had, a, of course, an evolving understanding of what that means. Back then, it was much more kind of a Christian perspective. Um, and when I first ate mushrooms, I didn't really have any kind of a massive spiritual experience. I just had fun and painted and got goofy and all that. Uh, but it didn't take very long for me to experience, you know, what I understood as my soul. Um, and so I worked with psilocybin for years to, to explore that part of myself. And when I started my first mushroom farm in Indiana, I really dove into uh, mushrooms as this access point for a deeper understanding of the nature of reality. And that's what I think spirituality is really trying to get to. It's trying to, again, it's all energy. We're trying to understand where we came from, where we are, and where the hell we're going. So in 2014, I started actually a, I was, I was on the board of a church, something, what was called the church of Soma. There's a medical doctor in Indiana. who's was a friend of mine who started this church and he and I both had, you know, the belief that the mushroom was a sacrament. Uh, he's, he's continued to stay in a very kind of hyper Christian perspective. And, and I've moved out of that in a lot of ways in most ways, really, I guess. Uh, but when I was arrested, uh, Church of Selma was very young. And after I was arrested, he was like, yeah, I'm not going to be doing this with you. We're still friends and we still talk and everything, but he just couldn't be publicly associated as a medical doctor um, with someone that had been arrested for psilocybin, understandably. <clears throat> and so that's when, I, that's when I started Myco because I felt like I didn't have an avenue um, to explore psilocybin here anymore and be taken seriously. Uh, and I pretty quickly felt at, at Myco that I was boxed into this more science-based therapeutic um, approach. And, you know, I was okay with that because the experience often led people to this deeper understanding or this deeper encounter as I mentioned before we started recording, I think that, you know, there, I had once I was working with, you know, a NASA scientist, this guy developed, helped develop the Mars Rover. And he had, he was a staunch atheist. And by the time he left that week, he, he wasn't a religious person, but he had some questions. I think that's ultimately where this goes now, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily believe that we should, if you will, be always taking a religious approach to psilocybin. But that's my approach. It has always been an access point for me to a higher nature of ourself. We do not know what God is. We talk about God. People talk about God and he this and it that and we don't have a fucking clue what's out there we don't we don't know we do not know where everything came from 
The best we got is the Big Bang. Well, where the hell did that come from? Right. We don't know. And I, 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 re- I won't put a label on any of it, which is why I love the philosophy of Taoism, because, you know, the first line of the Tao Te Ching is like the Tao that can be named is not the true and eternal Tao. It's whatever. I, I think I, I tend to think of existence as a shadow, like like existence is a shadow of the underlying true reality, which we can't understand because we're the shadow. We don't even know, you know, where we're coming from. So when I came back from Jamaica, I mean, that was, that was one of the biggest things that kind of pulled me out of that. uh, uh, What do you want to say that enterprise, but, you know, from Maiko, I mean, I always felt, a little unfulfilled because I could not really talk about my understanding of the mushroom in the way that I understand it. And that is, it is not a medicine. It is not a, you know, therapy any more than, you know, I don't know, deep breathing or water or anything else is this, this is something that is far more special. That is far more mysterious than, uh, an antidepressant. So what do we call that? We don't, there's, there's not good language for it. So sanctuary is, um, you know, an intentional community of faith in the ability of this organism, if you will, to take us to the threshold of the mystery. And I have seen so many times um, people that were unaware that there is even a mystery out there walk away from that experience and say, what the fuck is going on here? Unfortunately, I can say, I don't know. And that's the truth of the matter is that none of us knows what's going on here. We, we act like we do. We pretend like we're in control. We label things and we say this and that, but it's all, it's all just a way to pretend for that ego to stroke itself. Well, it says a lot, I think about our 21st century um, perspective that, you know, I think a lot of, I don't know. I want to say normal people or muggles or whatever (laughs) might, you know, look at like a a mushroom church, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think that that's kind of weird kind of out there, but, you know, I think it's a good opportunity to point out that this is uh, neither weird nor out there from the perspective of history. You know, the um, Brian Muir rescues book, the immortality key documents a lot of this stuff Mm -hmm. really well Mm -hmm. and how, you know, psychedelics have been used in religious contexts for as long as there has been civilization and prob and almost certainly longer. Um, and you know, you have from the mysteries at Ulysses to uh, temples in Chavin in South America to um, just all over the world, uh, you know, including some, you know, early Christianity. Uh, there's not hard proof, but there's good indication that may have been influenced. So, 
psychedelic use in a religious context is ubiquitous and common and not at all exceptional in human affairs. Like to to me, a a mosaic from the 10th century that shows Jesus surrounded by mushrooms or a mural that depicts the transfiguration of Christ into the God form in front of the disciples where he is holding mushrooms. That's proof positive to me there. That is concrete proof that early Christianity absolutely was founded in the consumption of psilocybin mushrooms. Um, So, yeah, I know it's, it's, it's weird, I guess. And I, you know, I kind of operate from the place where this has just been my reality for so long that I, this is just what is, you know, Um, and I understand that it can be strange or potentially off-putting to people, but all you've got to do is look through a little bit of human history and you'll see pretty clearly that from the oldest known set of cave paintings, period, until present day Mazatec that are still using the mushrooms in a Catholic, in a quasi-Catholic shamanic context, that this has always been a, you know, religious or spiritual or metaphysical access point there, and so I, there was a uh, i just want to say there was a statistic um released i think from the u.s census uh recently that the number of people who attend i think it's attend church or identifies religious has dropped to i think it was 47 percent, but basically mm-hmm. dropped to below at below 50 for the first mm-hmm. time ever in this country mm-hmm. so yeah, one way to interpret that is you know, the re- religious institutions are not working. People are leaving these communities. People are leaving um, churches. And mm-hmm. I would argue that um, the search for meaning or purpose or all of the functions that spirituality, you know, whether it's community or a sense of understanding life or uh, purpose, like that's not, that's never going to change like that's part of being human and so i i don't think it's that crazy to start thinking about the word church in um even just putting aside all of that history that we need community and psychedelics bring people together and so i think it's such a cool thing you're doing eric um and you know really appreciate you taking the time to come share that with us yeah well, i'm really grateful y'all uh had me on i mean you know the direct experience that's what people need we've had all this you know, religion that's been like telling us about God. I mean, it is a mushroom that can semi-reliably produce a mystical experience being considered a sacrament. Is that any more outlandish than a priest holding a cracker up, blessing it and turning it into the literal flesh of a dead human being? Is that really any more <laughs> outlandish it's not weirder yeah what a great conversation and um you know i i'm in my head already i'm like ah oh, we could have talked about this and that so you know yeah, maybe I think it's already time we do this again yeah. have thanks. a uh yeah have a good one and thanks for being on Yeah, thanks for taking the time, you all. Very much, very much enjoyed it.